Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Anne Napolitano is one of the last interviews I did at the radio station in 2020 before the big shutdown. That novel, Dear Edward, was an instant New York Times bestseller, a Read with Jenna selection, and was released on February 3rd as an Apple TV Plus series. As you've likely heard by now, Anne's latest release, Hello Beautiful, was Oprah's 100th book club pick. It came out in March and was also an instant New York Times bestseller. This week, it sits at number three. Anne is also the author of the novels A Good Hard Look and Within Arm's Reach. She was the associate editor of One Story Literary Magazine from 2014 to 2020. If you have been a longtime listener of the show or you follow us on Patreon, you will know what a huge fan I am of that magazine and the workshops and classes that they offer. She received an MFA from NYU. She has taught fiction writing at Brooklyn College's MFA program at NYU and Gotham. She joins me today to talk about Hello Beautiful, writing your obsessions, roving points of view, dealing with time in a novel, why radical empathy might be the strongest device in your writerly toolkit, and much, much more for both readers and writers. Before I bring Anne on, it's your friendly reminder to visit our Patreon page. We started the page a year ago to keep in better touch with you, open up lines of communication, get your insights and advice, and give back to you some tips and writing prompts each week. So if the show's boosted your writing in some way, or if you enjoy these backstory conversations about how books get made, you can visit us there, patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out. And speaking of levels of support, if you have been a longtime listener of the show or a new listener of the show and wouldn't mind dropping us a little review on Amazon or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, that helps other people find the show and really boosts the podcast up. So we appreciate that as well. On with the show. And welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again, Mari. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on everything that's happened since we last spoke and for using your pandemic time to produce a best-selling novel instead of just baking sourdough bread like the rest of us. <laughs> I didn't make any sourdough bread, but I did write a lot. Yes, it's you fair. did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting talking to writers and creatives who were extra creative during the pandemic and those who sort of went through an artistic hibernation. And I can't recall if you had already begun the seeds for this book when we talked back in February of 2020, or if this was entirely born out of that time period. It's a little of both. I have for Dear Edward and Hello Beautiful, I have this sort of structure where for the first nine months to a year of the book, I don't let myself write. I only am allowed to research, think, and take notes. And that's actually, that's really hard for me because I actually love writing. I love like creating a scene and, you know, having a character walk in and say something I didn't expect. It's an act of discovery, very similar to being a reader. But when I'm doing that, I cannot think with the analytical part of my brain. It like shuts that part down. So what I found to be the most efficient sort of way of managing my brain is by having that like nine month period where I'm not allowed to write, but I think about the book and I try to figure out who's in it and what's going to happen. And I do the research and 
like for Dear Edward, I went and interviewed an NBA physio, uh, not for Dear Edward, for Hello Beautiful, I went and interviewed an NBA physio and, you know, things like that, that I thought were going to play into the book. So when the pandemic started, when I started writing in April, 2020, I had been thinking about it for about nine months, but I didn't start writing until April, 2020. So tell me a little bit more about what that nine months, so it's research, it's taking notes, but it's not outlining, right? So it's just like a bunch of notes scribbled on paper and character sketches or plot sketches? It originated when it was a challenge from my husband, because when I, my second published novel, A Good Hard Look, took eight years. And I mean, so did Dear Edward, basically. But for A Good Hard Look, that that book was like such a struggle for me because Flannery O'Connor, who's a real short story writer, you know, many people know, she showed up sort of in the book about a year into my writing it. And I was like, horrified. I (laughs) had no aspiration to write a historical novel. I'm from New Jersey. And the idea of writing about a Southern literary icon is like, just wrong. If you're from the North to write about, (laughs) you know, Faulkner or Flannery O'Connor. So I really battled that novel. And it was draining and exhausting. And I wrote like hundreds of pages that I cut. And at the end of it, my husband was like, look, I thought this was supposed to be a labor of love for you. Like you should love it. Like you have to figure out a new way of doing it for your next book so that you're not like tortured the entire time. That changed a lot for me. So it was his challenge. He was like, I think that you need to spend, you know, a period of time not writing. And I think you should read outside of your normal genres. And I think that you should, you know, do research and actually like think all these things that I really I had never done before until I was in the book. Like, you know, I sort of I researched Flannery O'Connor after she showed up. So that created this structure, which worked so beautifully for me, for Dear Edward, that when I started writing, it was a very joyful experience, despite it being such a, you know, oh, seemingly sad book. But what it means for me is I use the, the program, the uh, writing program Scrivener. Mm, yeah. Um. So I use that basically I use it from like the first minute until like I'm 50% done with the book. And then I switch to word because it's kind of wonky when you want to be like printing and combining chapters. So once it gets too big, I move out of Scrivener, but in that first nine months to a year, when I'm doing research, it's a really helpful place to like put all the research and, you know, has like an index card option where you can like kind of literally on your screen be looking at index cards where I can be like taking notes on what I think might happen in chapter one and then another index card for chapter two and I can have different index cards for different characters. And so as I think, as I have ideas, I put them into Scrivener. So it, it is in the computer and I'll like link to articles. You know, when I was doing Dear Edward, I had a lot of I had a research section on Scrivener that had a lot of information on, you know, plane crashes and the National Transportation Safety Board, et cetera. And for Hello Beautiful, it was, you know, a lot of basketball research, et cetera. And and then speculating on who I thought these people were and what I thought was what I, you know, felt like I knew was going to happen and what I thought might happen. And really when I, for both of those books, when I actually start writing, I end up only using about 50% of what I've come up with like and 50% of it turns out to be just not right. But that groundwork ends up being extremely helpful to me as a like a starting point. That's actually a pretty high percentage. I'm pretty impressed with 50%. Because- yeah. Well, a lot of it is so yeah, you're right. I'm not 
I'm not story and uh, not storyboarding. What did you call it? outlining? Yeah. <laughs> I wish right. outline. Like, you know, when I read, you know, you hear Ann Patchett or John Irving talk about how they have mapped out, you know, every chapter and every scene, you know, in their book, in their head or in notes. I, I cannot do that. So what I end up with is like, um, like three sort of events that I feel really strongly are going to happen, but I have no idea how the characters are going to get like to that first event or, you know, to the second event. And then the, the, what I'm doing otherwise is really thinking about the people, the characters and like who they are, you know, what they want, who they are to each other. So the 50%, like a lot of that is really like, I figured out who the four sisters are. I figured out who William is, you know, like, which are big things, yes. but, but they're not like, it's not like I figured out there was going to be a car chase on page 150 and that didn't end up happening because <laughs> unfortunately I, I cannot, my brain doesn't do that. The things that I come up with are really sort of bigger, you know, more nebulous, but, you know, fundamental pieces like the people. Yes. And tell me about the sort of the, the kernel of this for you. Was was it the sisters? Was it was it character or was it situation or what was it? Well, it's so hard. It's like it is difficult to answer questions like that because, well, I mean, at least with this book, it's kind of disparate. I had a couple starting places. One actually was Dear Edward. In the story of Dear Edward, Edward lives next door to a girl his age named Shay. And Shay is 12 like him and she her father's been gone since she was a baby basically and Shay was one of those characters that showed up fully formed and I was like just sort of blown away by how cool she was and like how herself she was and and I ended up thinking throughout the novel like she just like a girl like this does not need a father like the father's losing out a hundred percent. Like she's fine. She's got a great mom who adores her, who's, you know, quirky and whatnot, but, but adores her, you know, like she's going to make her own way. She has not lost anything by not having a father. And then when I was done with dear Edward, I just found myself thinking like, I wonder what would happen if like Shay ended up meeting her father as a grown up by some circumstance brought them together. Mm-hmm. And that, so that was one. And obviously it, it it wasn't going to be Shay, but I just had this idea of, you know, a father who had left his daughter, you know, possibly coming back together with her later in life. And then the other thing is that there's a story in my family about a young boy who was born the same week his his sister died and how his parents really just could not face him. And that's sort of been passed down in my family. So that story had just been sitting inside me for a really long time. And that that was William. And then also my uncle who, um, my mother has five brothers and sisters. She comes from a large Irish Catholic family and only one of them had moved away. And it was my uncle Ed who lives in Pilsen in Chicago. And he had sent me postcards when I was a little kid and they were always addressed to hello, beautiful. Hmm. And how that greeting made me feel because I really, I knew he didn't know what I looked like really. He had like a billion nieces and nephews and he hardly (laughs) ever saw me. So I felt like he was seeing that I was beautiful on the inside. And since I was really bookish and shy, I felt like if I had any beauty, it was on the inside. And so that reading made me feel wonderful. And the neighborhood of Pilsen was this kind of like magical mural covered place in my child brain, you know, similar to, you know, the terrain of the novels that I loved, you know, because I I always have a hard, you know, to me, the books that I love are real. <laughs> and when I was a child, it was even more so. Um, so the fact that it's set largely in Pilsen in Chicago is because of my uncle. Those are like several threads that brought me into the book. 
Yes, I love that. It's so funny because when you started to talk about it came out of Dear Edward, as I started reading it, I thought Anne really has the pulse of these little broken boys. I know. Um, (laughs) It's true. Yeah, I was wondering, well, I guess we should take a a small moment to introduce the book. I, I, I kind of assume everybody knows this novel by now, but Perhaps a couple of listeners don't. So maybe we just do the the little elevator pitch for the novel so people have sort of a fuller picture of what we're talking about briefly. Can you just spend a, a couple of sentences introducing it and then we can we can more fully jump off? Sure. The novel spans from 1960 to 2008. So it's a, a fairly long period of time. And it starts with a young boy named William Waters, who is born the same week that his sister dies, his three-year-old sister uh, tragically dies. And that breaks the hearts of his parents. And they really, they are unable to give him any love through his childhood. And he turns to basketball as something that he is good at and as an activity and a way to connect to other people. And that earns him a, a scholarship to Northwestern in Chicago. He grows up in Boston. And While there, very soon into his experience in college, he meets a very strong-willed, vibrant young woman named Julia Padovano, and she decides he's going to be her boyfriend. And by dating Julia, he becomes part of her family that live in Pilsen in Chicago. And she has three sisters who she's incredibly close to. And their house, unlike his own, is pulsing with love and the complications that come with that. But the, the, the sisters are incredibly close and he really enters that family and eventually the the darkness from his own childhood becomes an issue for all of them and it shapes the lives of the sisters as well as william you have done this before that is a, that is an amazing description <laughs> that's great <laughs> and so it is told from i think at least four points of view in alternating mm-hmm. chapters were there characters in here that gave you a harder time to unlock and and find their voice and find their motivations or you know did you just have kind of have this this radical empathy that we'll talk about a little bit more for each of them talk a little bit about harder to access characters in this yeah for me julia who's the oldest of the sisters who dates william waters she was the hardest for me the the actual like who these women were and who all the characters were was not difficult. Like I, I knew her right away. I under like, I am, I actually feel like I am, there are parts of me in all of the characters, except for Julia and Rose, um, mm-hmm. who I adore. Like, I don't dislike them in any way. It's just that I am not that I don't see myself in them. And because Julia is such an, a significant part of the story, I, I had to understand her completely. and even though I knew and appreciated her when, when the sort of meat of the story happens on this very sort of complicated emotional situation arises, the, the micro steps of Julia through them was really tricky for me. And that the most rewriting that I did was for Julia. And it was really just like, how would she be feeling in response to this? How would she respond? I knew for Sylvie, I knew for William, but I had to like, I had to really drill into the earth to figure out what Julia would do. So she was definitely the most challenging. It's interesting because I had heard from an acting point of view, I think it was Meryl Streep who once said that she always knows a secret about the characters she plays that will never be 
revealed to the audience that yeah. unlocks, the, yeah, that kind of unlocks the character for her and makes her understand what motivates them. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that in fiction because you can't really do that. I mean, you know, your your job as fiction writer is to access the brain, <laughs> the inner the inner life. But I thought there must be some sort of equivalent, even if even if the readers know what that secret is, maybe for the writer, like there's some detail about the character that lets the writer know, ah, that's it. That's that's what's driving this character and that's what's making her make these decisions. I mean, it could be something as simple as a character's height, like for Alice, for the dot yeah. yeah, for Alice. Or, you know, who knows? But yeah. but I was wondering if if there was something about Julia that once you got that, once you understood that she became a little bit easier to access? Yeah, the the thing that I understood for Julia and really for her mother, Rose, too, is that they have fear that things are going to go wrong, and which everyone does. And their response to that is to try to control their life and try to control the lives of the people that they love so that nobody gets hurt. And that's really a fairly common disposition for people to carry. I've certainly known various people who operate that way. And there's nothing wrong with operating that way. I mean, it's an act of love. It's, you know, and also it's up to the people around them to respond, you know, how they would like to, to that. And the people who love Julia, I mean, for William, that's a um, a life raft initially. He has a really hard time knowing what he should do next. And Julia tells him and he's like, thank you. I'll do what you tell me to do. <laughs> and I know people like that too. So I, I did feel like, I think for the real challenge though, is when circumstances happen in a novel and that person changes or, you know, yeah, like grows or either for the positive or to the negative or both. Um, so when Julia is extremely challenged with her relationship with her sisters and with William, and then, you know, she has a daughter that need for control and everything and her response to things can't be the same as it was when she was 20 and she was fixing her sister's problems. And it's in those moments of evolution that when, if I am not fully, like if I, if I don't understand that character, if I'm not inside that character in the way that I am with most of them, then I have to evolve you know, within Julia. So it's it's actually the moments of extreme evolution for a character that I don't naturally align with that I think is, I just have to do more work to, I, I think of it as holding up my um, emotional tuning fork, like a musical tuning fork to be like, am I hitting the right note? Am I hitting the right note? And with like, so for Julia, when she's in these moments of extreme flux and change, I just don't know for sure what that evolution is going to be. And I have to just keep trying over and over and listening with my tuning fork. So it just takes more time. Whereas like when, when Sylvie is in a moment of great challenge and change, I feel very much like I understand her because she has a lot of, you know, similar insides to me. So I can make that shift and that evolution much more naturally. It, it just, I know it's right. Cause it's like, i my spirit moves with her. My spirit does not move with Julia, which is not bad. It just is, you know, like having some other, you know, you know, your neighbor's very different from you. It doesn't mean your neighbor's wrong. So that's really the moments where it becomes challenging. And I don't think there's any way out of that in a way, like, I'm not going to write all characters who are, you know, made of the same stuff as me. That would be really boring. And it just requires more work than the, the characters that are more like me. 
I'm glad you use that phrase, emotional tuning fork, because it kind of leads us into that discussion of radical empathy. And I've heard you talk about, and maybe you talked about it last time too, that you're not a judgmental person, that you you are really very open to people's choices and decisions. And I do think, as I mentioned in the introduction, that's the best tool a writer can can bring to the material because once you get judgmental about your characters it's just it's, it's just not a good read so it sounds like even with julia even with the the characters that you didn't totally relate to i love this idea of the emotional tuning fork and never judging them and i yeah i was wondering if that ever presented a challenge where you're like i hate the decisions you're making but i love you anyway and i understand why you're doing it if there's anything else you can say about that that ability to be totally unjudgmental and and radically empathetic towards all of your characters. I think that's such a, a great thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a peculiarity of mine. I mean, not that other people don't share it, but I really am not judgmental. If, you know, if you told me you cheated on your partner and, you know, you were horrified, I'm curious. Like, I'm I'm not, I'm just like, what happened that made you do that? Like, there, there's, you didn't do that in a vacuum, you know, what's going on in your life or in your past or, you know, inside you that led you to do this thing that you're really unhappy about now. I would never, it just doesn't, I don't have it inside me (laughs) for whatever reason to judge that person. I'm just curious. And also I feel like if I can understand why a character or a person is doing something, then it makes, it just simply makes sense to me. So even when Julia, and that's what I care about, like, does it make sense? Is it like, does it, does it ring true? And so for Julia, I, I never even, you know, she certainly makes choices that I never would have made, but I never think, oh, I don't like the choice you're making. I think this choice makes sense for you. You felt like you had no other option. I fully understand that. And the the thing for me is, which also I think is peculiar, again, probably not only to me, but certainly peculiar to me is that what I am doing in the book in when I write is the thing I care about the most is getting the characters right, like expressing them truly and deeply and not missing anything and not getting even like a micro decision that they make wrong. Like it it really is me with my tuning fork being like, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And a side effect of that is then when I reach the end of the book with all the rewriting, et cetera, like it's done, I know it's true, even though it's fictional but I have no idea if it's any good. Like I truly, when I hand it over, I'm like, oh my God, like this might be just boring or depressing. I mean, I like, because I don't, I don't have those thoughts at all the whole time. Cause all I'm focused on is doing justice to these characters within the circumstances they're in and getting it right. And all I'm trying to do is get it right. And so by the end, I know I've gotten it right, but I have, but then I just have this moment of like real panic where I'm like, oh my God, God, I may have just embarrassed myself. I may have written something that's like ridiculous or, you know, and I, I can't regret it at that point. I'm like, it is what it is. Cause at least it's true, but it, that is what I, but that is what I'm doing when I'm writing, which I think is somewhat unusual, at least from the other writers that I've spoken to. It's so funny because we talk about having sensitivity readers occasionally mm. on the show and like, you're the opposite. Like you are the sensitivity reader for your book and then you need the reader's who are the plot readers or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't, you don't, but, but I mean, this is an amazing novel, but in your own mind, it sounds like 
you know, you've got the sensitivity issues down, but you need, I mean, you, you didn't need anything. This was unbelievable. But speaking of that, did you have, I, do you show this to people after at, at any point in the process you wait till it's all done or how to, in terms of readers for it, just, just since we're on that topic real quick? Yeah, this book is different than any other that I've done. I mean, I wrote it in two years, which is unbelievably fast. Yes. Dear Edward took seven or eight years. And so did the book before that. And it was completely unusual. So for every book I've done, I have two writer friends who I went to graduate school with, Hannah Tinty, um, who wrote The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley, which is an amazing novel that everyone should read. Mm-hmm. And um, and she's the, one of the co-founders of One Story Literary Magazine. And Helen Ellis, who is a wonderful writer and has a new collection of humorous personal essays coming out in June called Kiss Me in the Coral Lounge, which is hysterical. Hmm. Um, so we're very different writers, like we write different things, but we have been each other's first readers for, I think, like 27 years now, which is insane. So they always read the sort of just the very beginnings of anything that I'm doing. I think of it as like, they're the people who I can ugly cry in front of. Like I, I literally can, but also not that I'm often ugly crying, thankfully, but like that, that version of my writing where I like, it's terrible. Like I'm trying to figure something out. It's like very, like the very beginning where it's just awful. And they're the people that I can show it to. I would never show those pages to my agent or editor. So they were with their, the whole time as I've gotten, you know, as I've been writing for longer and longer, I try to minimize what I give to them. And really what I give to them is like the worst versions of the story and the parts that I'm struggling with. I don't, so they really don't read the good parts or <laughs> like, they don't, read it when, they don't read it when it's like good, but they're so helpful to me and being like, this works, this doesn't, you know, like I'm interested in this character, this, you know, they, they'll be like, this chapter is like boring next to the one beside it in a different time period, which is great. So that's really helpful. And usually I just use them until I'm done. And then I give it to my agent. That's what I did with Dear Edward. And then my agent gave me notes for Dear Edward. I went away and spent like six months rewriting and then we sold it. But for Hello Beautiful, I did, I worked with Helen and Hannah for like five, I started it in April. And actually I had been to a reading for the writer, Kevin Wilson, who wrote, uh, has written many wonderful books, but the one about children, (laughs) I always say the one about children exploding, Uh, which I, Oh God, I can't think of it. No, it just blew out of my mind. Too. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's so good. Yes. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. So I went to go see him read at a bookstore near me when that book came out. And we have the same agent, Julie Bear, who's remarkable and amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in his QA, Kevin said that every time he re- he's writing a book, when he has a hundred pages, he sends it to Julie so she can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. Like that sounds helpful. Like if she's like, oh my God, you're completely off base or, you know, this is terrible or racist or whatever. Like, I want to know, it would be helpful to know (laughs) hundred pages in. Um, So when I had like 120 pages of Hello Beautiful, I was like, can I give it to you to read? And she was like, yes, please. And that was like in September of 2020. And she read it and loved it. And she was like, I think we should sell it now to my editor, Whitney Frick, who published Dear Edward. And I had never done that before. I mean, it usually doesn't happen with novels anyway. Usually you write the entire thing and then you sell it. But because Dear Edward had done well and I had a really great relationship with my editor, 
Julie was like, I think we should do this now. And then you can work on the book. We can work on the book with Whitney. Mm, yes. um, so that That's never happened for me before. And so what that meant was we did, we sold it then. And then every like 60 pages, I was, when I had 60 new pages, I would give it to them. I was still using Helen and Hannah. Like I would, they would read using sounds terrible. I was still giving <laughs> for their pages to Helen and Hannah before I gave it to um, Whitney and Julie, but they, it was very efficient because like I actually wrote chapters from Rose, the mother's point of view and Izzy, who is the cousin of uh, Alice. And they were like, this is too many people. Like you, we don't need them for the story. So I cut them early. Whereas in my own druthers, I probably would have written like 200 pages from their points of view before anyone, you know, before they read it. So part of the reason I wrote it in two years was because I was doing it with this, like <laughs> this intensive team that I really trust and um, respect, which is absolutely vitally important. I cannot imagine doing this any other way. I wouldn't do it any other way. I'm like a big believer in you know, making sure you're writing the novel that you want to write before you sort of let the sort of business side in, you know, who's thinking about selling or anything like that. But I really respect my editor and agent as readers. And I know that they want the book to be the best it can be, which is all I care about too. So in that's what that is what the process was for this book. I was wondering about that that gap between the two years and the eight years and mm-hmm. whether it was that year that you spent thinking about it or, but it sounds like it's it was a combination of things. It was probably the quietness of the pandemic too, but. Yeah, it was definitely the pandemic as well. I mean, I, I started it in April, 2020 and we were still like basically on full, we were on full lockdown in New York and my dad died that month too. And we weren't able to go be with him when he died and we weren't able, while he was dying and we weren't able to gather when he died because of the time period, which happened to so many people during that like specific window, mm-hmm. but it was like so isolating. And so everything was so unknown and, you know, unprecedented on every level. And I had grief because of my father. And so I really dove into this book and I was sad, like William was sad in the beginning. And I felt like I needed the Padovano sisters the same way he did. So it feels it, it is my most personal book in that I just feel like my heartbreak and the things that I was thinking and worrying about are all in there. And I, I, it felt like I really needed the book in a way that I haven't needed a book while I was writing it ever. Yeah. I can, I can see all those reverberations and everything that was going on with you. Gosh, I wish those chapters from Rose and Isabel's point of view, you should like release an addendum for the the hungry readers out there who want to read those. I know somebody suggested I should put them on my website. (gasps) Yes. Yes. That would be amazing. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. We'll be right back with more from Anne Napolitano and Hello Beautiful. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show or you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, this is your chance to support us. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Anne Napolitano talking about Hello Beautiful. Hello Beautiful. 
So tell me a little bit about the time period over because dealing with time in a novel, I think is is tricky. And this book spans decades. First of all, I really love how you deal with time just right at the beginning of each chapter. We're told whose point of view it is and what time period we're in. So that date stamp is really helpful, I'm sure, for both reader and writer. But you still have to manage time. So did you work backwards to their ages of where you wanted them to end up and then subtract where they would have had to have been in time back in the day? Uh, It's so funny to say that we're probably like talking about writing a historical novel in the 1980s now because it was, you know, 40 some (laughs) years ago. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, all those all those issues of time. Maybe you can talk about it from kind of a bird's eye perspective and then I can drill down on some other questions. Let's see. I write the novel the way that it's written, like in the order it's written, basically. I, I've i always done that. So I didn't know what year the book was going to end when I started it. I knew some of the things that were going to happen to the sisters and William, and I knew that pushed me, you know, into the meat of their lives, certainly, which made me, you know, cover ground quickly in the first, you know, 50 pages, because I knew to get to the story that I was going to tell, I had to, you know, move And that was helpful, like, as far as creating the time passage. And I'm, I mean, I'm 51. And so I grew up in the 80s. And my mother was, she went back to school when I was in elementary school and got her PhD in organizational psychology. And she became a very successful business consultant when I was, you know, a teenager-ish, middle school teenager. And so she wore the shoulder pads and, you know, was part of that first wave of women where you could be CEO or, you know, like, so it is, it is historical fiction, but it's historical from my own lifetime. And, you know, I'm, I'm really interested. I was interested in that period of time because when I went to college, my freshman year of college was 1990. And that was the first out gay person I ever met was in in college, which is, you know, seems crazy now, (laughs) Um, but it was, people just didn't come out, you know, so it moved obviously and expanded wildly and exponentially from there. But I was, you know, when Emmeline is dealing with her sexuality in the book, I, you know, I remember that time period. And I was really interested in the, you know, women trying to achieve the level of freedom that they can but hemmed in by the generation that they're part of. Like I watched my mother try to be a superwoman, which was, you know, the the sort of the cover of Time magazine in the 1980s that a woman could be, you know, a high-powered business person, an amazing wife, an amazing mother, you know, like and then, you know, within 10 years we were like, well, that's not possible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. why are we putting this ridiculous pressure on women to try and achieve something that no one can achieve? So I was interested in exploring that too. So, and, and Rose, who's a generation earlier, you know, her freedom really was by successfully parenting these four girls in a way that she considered successful. And that put a huge amount of pressure and stakes on that because she couldn't achieve more for herself. It wasn't, you know, a possibility for her in her generation. So, and then Alice, who is the daughter of Julia, is in a completely different world again and views her mother with great skepticism, you know, for the choices that she's made. So I was really interested in exploring these generations of women, which required this passage of time, as well as the story itself requiring it. 
And the only way I can do it is I make a mess of it initially. I do write the book in the order it's in, but I don't really pay attention to like, you know, it's very possible for someone to be pregnant for like, you know, 13 months in, you know, when you're going (laughs) through. So like, I, I don't, you know, get worried about that kind of detail then that I try to, you know, that I hone in later, you know, because I don't know what's going to stick or what's going to stay anyway. So I move like instinctually and messily through time. And then uh, my editor had this, she makes these incredible like um, timelines across like a a huge horizontal strip of paper where she, she writes, she figures out like (laughs) what happened in the wrong year, et cetera. And then I try to fix it. And was one of the very original conceptions of the book during that nine-month think period that you were going to show the ripple effects of sort of generational trauma and how decisions before people are born will impact their adult lives? Was that always part of it where it was going to have to span 30 years so we could get the generational effects of decisions people make? Well without giving too much away here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I wish I was that. I'm not that smart in my brain. I knew I was starting with this boy who was born the same week that his sister died. And I, what I needed to know was whether he could be okay after going through a childhood look like he did. And I, very similar to with Will, with uh, Edward, I needed to know whether Edward could be okay. It was Edward emerged from a physical wreckage and William emerges from a emotional wreckage. But the the really far-reaching ramifications of the trauma that he's experienced, I didn't know what they were going to be. Like I didn't know the role that his sister was going to end up playing in his his you know deceased sister was going to end up playing in his um, in the shaping of him, but also the shaping of his adulthood and and him coming to terms with himself and his daughter. I didn't know that those things were going to happen, but I am fascinated by that. So exploring it made sense to me. One thing was that I knew one of the things that I knew, quote unquote, during the nine month period, was that the big thing that happens to Sylvie was going to happen. So I and I knew that was, you know, later on. So I knew I had to get that was one of the things that I knew I had to move towards. So that was inevitably going to take me for a long time, actually, that scene where she is dealing with that was the prologue of the book. So I knew that I had to get them well into adulthood to reach that point. All the other things that unfurled alongside it, there's like the wonderful, they're all wonderful, but a wonderful um, essay by George Saunders that's in The Guardian and are from a few years ago where they're asking him what the difference was after Lincoln and the Bardo came out, what the difference for him was between writing short stories and writing a novel. And I'm going to butcher it, obviously, but he was saying that the really interesting thing was that writing is, you know, our brains are pattern recognition machines. So you throw like in a short story, you might throw like six bowling pins up in the air and they cross in the air and they spin around and then they they land where they land. And he's like, when you write a novel, you're throwing like 127 bowling pins up in the air and they are doing their weaving and crossing. And you do not know like what the pattern is going to be and then how they will come back together at the end. And that's true. That was very true 
for this book. Like I, I knew Cecilia was a, was a artist, one of the sisters. And I knew that she started painting murals and the neighborhood of Pilsen is famous for the murals on the walls. So that made sense, but I didn't know that that was going to combine with William's sister and, you know, like that she was going to end up painting murals that sort of depicted the family and, and, you know, and touched what they had been hiding on the inside of themselves and put it on walls. Like that's the pattern recognition software in my brain, I think, where, you know, the, I knew the things that I knew and then the patterns are pulled out in ways that I couldn't have foreseen. And that's part of obviously what makes it magical for me about the writing process. I know that essay by George. And I said, well, if all of our brains worked like yours, George, it would be fine. But I don't think I have that. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. What I take comfort from that is that what, what he's talking about is like he it's hidden, like you have no control over it. And so I'm like, okay, great. I don't know what my brain, you know, like I am just going to trust in the fact that I have a pattern recognition machine. It's not as amazing as George Saunders, but it's going to do what it's going to do. And if I, you know, if I come up with this sort of starting place and these people and these, you know, elements, then my brain's going to do something with them. Yes. Yeah. I told him results may vary, George. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I know a huge issue for writers is middles. Middles are so, you know, you've got all this momentum and energy at the beginning. You know where you kind of want to end up. You knew this kind of thing about Sylvie where you were trying to get to. And I know for a lot of writers, the middles just sag and lose momentum. I know now that we're talking about George Saunders, he talks about these little gas stations in his story where, you know, he can rev up his cars a little bit. Mm. But tell me a little bit about the middles for you because there was so much there was so much going on and I think roving points of view might might help this out because you know you can switch brains for a little while but do you find that as hard as a lot of writers find it or tell me about getting around it I do think having different points of view is always helpful for me because someone is you know telling you something you didn't know before even if what's happening in the middle is not as dramatic or exciting is like what set off the story or, or whatever. I guess the thing that I can say is that up until this point in, in with Hello Beautiful 2, what I tend to do is spend the bulk of my writing, the bulk of however long it takes me to write that book is spent writing the first two thirds. I generally don't write the last third until I really feel like I've built the house is solid and like the motivations are correct and, and the things that have happened are the things that should have happened because I do feel like I almost never know what the end of the book is going to be. And that's true. I didn't know what the end was going to be for this book, but I don't feel like I can leap off, leap off the cliff and weave something with the pattern recognition machine, et cetera. If like everything isn't lined up well before that. So I don't actually think of it as the middle because I spend so much time sort of headed for the end of the middle, basically. And that's like one with the beginning. And then I view the last third as like, hopefully I rewrite that the least because I'm trying to tie or, you know, even like knit ribbons while I'm in that part. I don't, I don't want to tread over that ground endlessly. So I do tread over the ground before that much more but I'm trying to get to a place where it's all right. 
by the final two third. And I think, I think for some, in some way that works for me because I don't, I don't have a soggy middle because I don't think of it as the middle because I spent most of my writing hours, you know, headed towards the end of the middle as opposed to the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that bowling pin image is kind of useful because you can kind of track yourself where, okay, here's where they're, they're all going up in the air and then identifying what they are. And mm-hmm. then kind of seeing, you know, where they are in the air and then positioning yourself so you can catch them all when they, when they fall, when they fall on your head. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, in that image, I still don't fully understand because I'm like the bowling balls, balls, or bowling balls, bowling pins fall on the ground. But I'm like, that doesn't seem neat. Like, I That's feel a like mess. I should yeah. <laughs> be catching them again. But obviously, you can't catch 128 bowling pins but yeah that's in any case it that falling when it when they fall and where they land is what the hopefully where everything weaves together in this beautiful way even you know even if you're not wrapping everything up you're you're breathing full life into this story and what happened and it all feels like it brought you somewhere yes and and i know jess walters talks about this too about you know, the the need for surprising inevitability. And we obviously won't give the end away, but that's how it felt. And things are both, I think that's the difference also between short stories and novels is that novels, things feel like they've come to a close, even though there's this opening and you don't know where these characters are going to go from here, but you feel a sense of resolution. Whereas in a short story, it's very often ambiguous and you're like, oh, well, hope it works out for them. We don't know. Many things could happen from here. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I can't. I'm not a short story writer. I haven't written a successful quote unquote story since I was in college, and like weaving something that small is like kind of horrifying to me to to consider. Like, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's scary, very scary to me. And I actually prefer reading. Not like I just. I like the long form. I like the messiness. I like. I like really like getting to know characters you know, as if they're real, because to me, they, in best case scenarios, they, they are real. They were real to all of us. And I know you had talked about going through a grieving period after this book was over, but yeah, mm-hmm. they really were so fully realized that you, you miss them. You deeply miss them. I mean, I miss them. I'm oh, sure you miss them. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is in the, the initial thing where I, there is a period where you finish the book and then you go into the copy editing phase and, which is not very long. It's like, I don't know, a month or six weeks or something where the copy editor gives you notes and you give it back and then give it back. But at that point, you don't, it's not in the main files, no longer in my computer. It's like at Random House in the copy editing system. So like, I really have given the book away and no one's read it yet. So <laughs> it's like, I've lost them. And I, I look around and like, nobody, like, it's like they are gone because there's no one's seen them. So like, there's just, I think that's like, and, and I don't get to live in that world anymore. And it's like legitimately devastating. <laughs> devastating yeah, yeah. But once people start reading it, then I feel better. Cause I'm like, Oh, though, like I, you know, if somebody on Goodreads, an early reader says, I love Sylvia. I'm like, me too. You know, like, <laughs> I, feel like I feel like she's real again because other people have, are like walking down the street in Pilsen and seeing her the tree falls in the woods and and no one's there to hear it until they are. And you're, you're just waiting for it to fall. So you can say, yes, I heard that too. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I love that. In terms of research, there's a lot of basketball as we've mentioned. And I know that's one of your obsessions. The last time we talked, you had talked about this 
magnetic board in your writerly chest that mm-hmm. writers should pay attention to. And people can go back and listen to that interview because you really eloquently talked about that. But the the things that writers call to themselves that that they should pay very particular attention to because it's so very unique to them. And I am guessing basketball must have been one of those things because it plays a, a pretty prominent role in the novel. But tell me a little bit about, there. there's a lot of other things that I feel like would have taken a lot of research. There's some medical things, you know, you had to become a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a medical doctor, a physio basketball coach. <laughs> there's there was a lot of expertise you you kind of had to play at in this book. And so tell me a little bit about wrapping yourself around the research and knowing when you'd done enough and felt confident to leap off. My best friend from growing up is a doctor and her whole family are doctors. So she was my source of medical expertise. Um, I would bounce everything off of her to see if it was correct. My sister is a psychologist and a therapist. So for the, um, the psychiatric portion, I asked her questions, but I also read a fair amount about sort of mental health in again, in the eighties, which is very different, you know, as far as how it was viewed, et cetera, than it is today and how hospitalization and care was dealt with. Then I read a couple books on Walt Whitman because he ended up becoming sort of an important touchstone for Sylvie and her father in the book. I think my general stance on research, uh, things that come up, you know, in the writing is that I, I write them in, in a way that feels truthful to me in that draft. And then I go and check to make sure I'm not egregiously wrong, but I don't second guess myself while I'm writing it. I'm sure, I mean, the, the things for be, you know being a professional woman in the eighties, I talked to my mother about that because Julia becomes a organizational psychologist So a lot of it was like, you know, I had people who were conveniently in my life who gave me information or pointed me in directions. I read about trauma. Um, I had been been reading about trauma for years because of Dear Edward, but I did read about that as well to make sure that the things that I was feeling on behalf of William, you know, made sense and that I wasn't missing sort of responses that would be very natural to someone who goes through the things that he goes through. So that none of the research felt onerous in it or very intensive in any way. I mean, the basketball thing predated the book. I had developed an obsession with the history of basketball when I was doing a lot of reading about the history of social justice. I found that the history of basketball in America really paralleled that uh, path. And it was really fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And the stories within basketball and the figures like Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and and others, and the sort of civil rights activism of the players, really from the 50s onward, was very moving to me. And in the way that I couldn't understand why, why I was so moved. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up as a soccer player, my husband and my boys are really into soccer, it was just a very strange, you know, or inexplicable draw, but I paid attention to it. And I knew that that would play into the book too, but that was probably, and I interviewed this NBA physio when I was in LA for book tour for Dear Edward. And there, but the rest of it was, I would, I would just try to make sure after I built the ground that it was solid. So you have talked about the, the great joy of writing pretty sentences. And we talk on the show a fair amount about hard scenes to write, whether it's sex scenes or violent scenes. 
And the scenes that jumped out at me that are appear very early in the book are birthing scenes. And I haven't, I don't know why, I feel like I haven't read a lot of really effective giving birth scenes. And mm. these were so kind of beautiful and struck me as hard to write about. Maybe because the one time I gave birth, I was so out of it that I didn't have any profound observations about, <laughs> about it. But um <laughs> I was wondering if there are things you can say about that because that though I don't know why those those particularly the the one scene with Alice uh, Alice's birth really stuck with me. Was that hard or was that just very natural for you to do? Yeah, it was natural for me to do. I mean, I've given birth twice. I I found I mean, there's it's such an intense, unlike anything else, experience to go through to give birth to a child, and both of my births, I just, I went through a period, certainly when I was, you know, in the act of having babies period, where I was just fascinated by people's labor stories. Like I would, you know, I'd be, you have a baby, please tell me everything. Like, cause everyone's story is really different. Like how they experienced it, like whether they wanted to get like knocked out the minute they walked into the hospital or whether they were like, I'm going to, you know, bite on a steel bar and give birth to this child with no drugs and, you know, like the stance that you had coming in and then what actually happens. It's such an unusual experience in that you're so out of control. Like you do not know what's going to happen. You don't know when, you know, you're going to go into labor. You don't know what that's going to look, you know, in our world where we're really able to control and predict so much, it's, it's this very elemental experience, which still, unless you, you know, schedule yourself an early cesarean and, you know, really control it is out of your control. And that was, that is, was fascinating to me to experience. And I felt like for Julia, that would be a really wild challenge for her. And I do, I did, I felt like when I was giving birth, I was like, oh my God, like, I cannot believe that I am such an animal that just like breaks open and this child emerges. Like it's, it was just such a powerful experience and so fascinating to me that I, you know, I was happy to be able to write, write about it and write about it in the framework of who these women were. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really, I mean, there's so much, again, not to give too much there, there's a lot of birth, a lot of death and parallel births and parallel, parallel mm-hmm. death. Did the book change your, well, not change your mind about anything, but, you know, as you set out to answer these questions for yourself, do you, did you find yourself thinking about life, thinking about people, thinking about situations any differently? It's hard to unpack what I like feel or mean when I say that it is my most personal book, but it definitely is like, I do feel like so much of my grief and heartbreak and sort of the intensity of feelings that I had in the pandemic, my father dying at the very beginning of the pandemic was very hard for my family of origin. It really walloped everybody and everyone's roles. I think I, another thing I realized by having a parent dies, something just, I wouldn't have thought about was that like your role changes, like you've always been in this sort of static structure with a hierarchical structure with like, if, you know, if you had a two parent family, two parents, and then the kids, um, and then one of the parents is removed. And in my experience, everybody's role was just like up in the air and like lost all foundation. And it was very unsettling for everybody. And it brought a lot of like flux and a lot of really strong emotions and the pandemic combined with it was, you know, just super intense. And so I, when I was writing about 
like I wanted to figure out what love was in this book, like in what connection meant and what seeing each other meant. And there was these things that I was going through in my real life emotionally that I was kind of like knocked sideways by. And that's not usually how I personally operate. Like mm-hmm. I, I am, I'm very level and, and I'm one, you know, I'm an overthinker and an over worrier. So like, I always, you know, feel fairly prepared or like, you know, if sussed out, you know, to the extent that one can, you know, like what emotional things I might go through or whatever, but the pandemic and my dad dying really just like, I, there was no preparation and everything was very heightened. And um, so I really found myself in this elemental way through the characters in this book and their situations being like, what is love? Like, what is grief? How can we care for each other? How impactful can we be on another person by caring for them? And what is how detrimental is it to not be seen? And all these things really were kind of going on for me in my real life. And it was extremely helpful to me to be able to exercise them in this story, even just to be like, oh, I feel the love. Like I feel characters looking at each other and really seeing each other. And I feel how powerful that is. And that's powerful, like for me to experience as the writer and, you know, and often healing for me as the writer, it's not, I mean, there's so many spoilers, but the one that I keep giving away that I guess I've decided I'm okay with is the, the, the father in the book dies, the father of the four girls, Charlie within the first hundred pages of the book. And I didn't know that was going to happen when I started writing, but as one example, I got so I was not, we weren't able to have a wake or a funeral or anything for my father, but I was able to go through those for Charlie. And I really felt like I was sitting, you know, in the church pew with the Potavano sisters. And I was able to like have that, you know, tactile experience that I wasn't able to have for my dad. So there, there are ways in which this book met me emotionally or was shaped by my emotions in a way that I've never experienced before as a writer. Yeah. And so hard to anticipate those as we're talking about birth scenes and you you don't know what's going to happen to you and there's no way to control it. That's true of death too, right? I mean, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't know how you're going to react to it when it happens and it's hard to anticipate. And then to be deprived of all of those mechanisms, our society is set up for grief for very good reason. What a devastating experience. You know, we often talk about whether writing is therapy and, and, and sometimes, and, you know, usually no, but in sometimes it, maybe it can be. Yeah, no, it was very, I don't, I, I, for some reason, buck at the idea of writing being therapy, but yeah, probably just because it feels very different. I mean, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I've been in therapy. It doesn't have the same, I feel like what the writing does is like, it's working on me on this much deeper level that I can't access articulately. And also like, I wouldn't be able to access, you know, in a therapy session. So it feels you know, more meaningful and profound to me, but I think I'm actually just also bad at therapy because I'm so hyper articulate and, and like self-aware on the level that I can be self-aware. Whereas the, in, in this situation anyway, like the, the book was working with like the mucky depths of me in a way that I have not figured out how to access in therapy. Yeah. Well, I love that about fiction because you can, yeah, you can do all that really hard, truthful work in ways that you're right, you can't do in real life or in nonfiction. Uh, we're drawing down on our time. I had a thousand more questions, but is there writing advice that we should have covered? Things that have sustained you, things you've learned over these four years that we haven't talked about that you think is worth mentioning? I feel like all my writing advice 
predates this book. This book was such a strange experience for me that I didn't use like any of my normal tactics, like for both Dear Edward and the book before that, because they took so long. Like you were talking about the middle of the book. For me, I was I would always suffer in the middle of like the writing where I was like four years in and I could tell I was so far away from being done. (laughs) And then there's like an inevitable despair that comes with that, even if you're, you know, finding the process meaningful. And that's when I would, you know, make a deal with myself that I had to write for five minutes a day. And I put an X on my calendar and my job was to string together as many X's as possible. And obviously many days I would write for more than five minutes, but I often tell young writers that because if you're, you know, if you have a full-time job or, you know, you have a baby or all the various chapters of life that make drawing on your insides to create a work of fiction, very challenging, just do five minutes because it'll keep you going. It'll keep the story going. You know, the expectations are so low, but I actually wrote this book in such a fevered (laughs) pitch that that was never on the table. I wouldn't recommend uh, sort of of the state in which I wrote this novel. Don't live through the pandemic again. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Don't throw yourself into a situation that's such that you are like your emotional life is being explored and sustained by by the writing writing that you're doing. In real time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, people can find you all over the web with this book. So if you want to hear Anne talk with Oprah or any number of other people about other aspects of the novel, I, I, you're a simple Google search away. Normally I tell people where to find people, but you're so easily findable now. People should just Google you. I don't know if you're you're probably done with the, the book tour aspect of this, but maybe people can catch you on the paperback tour if they want to to see you in real life. Yeah, I'm actually doing a couple more dates. We're doing it sort of in a staggered way. So I'm I'm actually in the beginning of June, I'm going to Ohio and Texas. I'm doing an event in Connecticut later this month. If people go to the event page on my website, they'll see if there's anything that's upcoming. Fantastic. Yeah. Andapolitano.com. I think yes. it's the website. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. And Napolitano. I can't wait for the next one. We get to oh, gosh. Do this again. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, me too. I can't. I'm looking forward to talk to you again. I uh, look forward to starting to write another book. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Mari. I really appreciate it and enjoy it. That was Anne Napolitano. The book is Hello Beautiful. It's out and available now, published by Dial Press. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's and Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.